Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode. It's brought to you by Beneath. Starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. And it's also brought to you by Jackson Row. Vancouver Design Jackson Row clothing caters to a relaxed bohemian lifestyle. Large doses of love go into every single piece, featuring comfortable favorites like sweaters, dresses, playsuits, and even stuff for men and children. Made up of neutral tones and flowy West Coast vibes, Jackson Row uses only the highest quality materials to ensure you stay comfortable and looking great. Check out yours today at jacksonrow.ca and use the code UNITY to help support the podcast. Also brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries. Head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces. And brought to you by Heads Up Guys. Heads Up Guys is a resource providing men with information and practical tips on how to manage and prevent depression. This is a dedicated online tool to helping men get the help that they need, find someone to talk to, and navigate difficult times. For more information, head over to headsupguys.org. So I got the opportunity to chat with Dr. Donna Ferguson out of CAMH in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And she has been working as a psychologist in the CAMH Work Stress and Health Program, but she has been a psychologist for 17 years. I got to have a really insightful conversation with her uh, about mental health and ways to really help move forward uh, after trauma. So I hope you guys all enjoy the episode. Dr. Donna Ferguson, tell me everything about you, please. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's an honor. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I am a clinical psychologist. I work at the Work Stress and Health Program at the Center for Digital Mental Health, CAMH. So I've been working actually at my program for the last 17 years, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, it seems like a lifetime, um, almost a couple of decades, and um, I feel like uh, I run the program. (laughs) I'm sure everybody there assumes you run the program, too. Kind of, yeah. Uh, So I do have some leadership, a clinical leadership role. So uh, in in addition to a lot of clinical work that I do, which is a lot of uh, psychological stuff and and treatment, um, clients that come in through insurance, usually through the workplace safety insurance board, so workplace incident, a lot of first responders. Um, I also do a lot of clinical leadership uh, supervision of people who are in the program as well, people who psychologists or, you know, different roles. Wow. Okay. So you have a, you have a handful of jobs. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't think you have enough hands for the amount of jobs no, you have. My God. Certainly, certainly no. <laughs> I, I'm so interested in you because I, I got the privilege and pleasure to speak with a colleague of yours and, um, uh, Sandy Treliving has been a huge, um, advocate for Cam H and she's been a, you know, a mentor for me. And when she started discussing this amazing, um, initiative you guys had coming out, she was telling me all about it. And um, I really don't know that I can do it justice. So I, I, I want you to start off. How did not suicide, not today really come about how, cause I know you, you say you don't run these programs, but let's be honest, you run these programs, girl. You you know how to get it done, and that's why people assume you run them even if you don't by title. So can you tell me a little bit about this uh, this incredible initiative you have? I can tell you a little bit just from my perspective. Unfortunately, I'm really not behind the scenes. Uh, you know, a lot of it is through the foundation. Of course, of course. Call on me to do some of these uh podcast and you're a big deal we all want to talk to you get over it thank you thank you i love it but i i'm honored to work for the foundation and you know do a lot of these um these talks and because um, i think that this is really helpful for people um how i understand is that you know obviously the suicide prevention is, is a big deal for for us as mental health 
professionals, but it's a big deal for CAMH as well. We do a lot of research, um, a lot of uh, intervention around uh, suicide prevention, and it is really um, a, a huge, it's, it's kind of always been a huge initiative in CAMH, even historically, you know, in terms of developing apps and different sort of uh, assessments and measures so that we can um, assist in, in clinicians, you know, assessing for suicide, treating and dealing with suicide on a regular basis. And so I think, you know, a lot of that was born out of that. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, you, you, when, you, when you're talking about suicide prevention, are you talking about um, trying to help uh, providers in the sense of like from a distance perspective? Uh, it, it, well, it's both, right? Okay. So the research that we do is going to be helpful to everybody. Of course. And I think the, the actual intervention or treatment that people do one-on-one as clinician mm-hmm. is, is that sort of in the room. Um, support that people need when they're either sort of, you know, we have stages of suicidality. So, you know, someone can be at a, a stage of passive suicidality where they might feel like they're better off dead or people are better off without them mm-hmm. um, to sort of, you know, active suicidality where they're actually thinking about hurting or killing themselves and have a plan or intention to do so. Um, and there's, there's levels of risk even at that part of the spectrum. So, so we're helping people at any part of that spectrum from an intervention perspective to manage the suicidality in our office and even when people leave our office. So there's, a, there's sort of different ways that we're helping people more globally and you know, then more individually. I love that because when you're talking about such a massive foundation, a lot of people don't quite understand, well, at least from my perspective, a lot of people don't quite understand the, uh, the, the amount of wheels and turning, turning gears that it takes to run uh, programs like this. And, and like you said, you're, you're dealing with people on a large scale, but then you're also dealing with people on a uh, on a much person to person basis. And I was, I, was, I was doing my digging. I'm not going to lie. I did, I did some digging. Did my digging. And I learned all about your incredible um, practice on its own and what you do for the, your, your own work and your own prevention and your own, you know, I, my God, I can only imagine just sidetrack. I see a therapist every week and I can only imagine how much fun you would be to see though, because I feel like you would not only kick my ass in the process um, if it needed to be kicked, but you also have this, this, uh, this realism about you that makes you um, really personable. If that have you ever, I don't know if you've been told that thank before, you. but I, thank you. well, it's really important. Well, no, it's really important when you're dealing with um, psychologists, psychiatry, uh, when you're dealing with people who have mental health, um, mental health issues. It's not always the first thing you want to do is talk to somebody when they're this. Um, stiff, bored person that you don't really want to open up to that. You don't really want to be honest about who you are to that. And I think that's why um, maybe you've been so successful in in your practice and what you do is because you're just a normal human being who's just, and that comes through. And I think that's, thank you. I think that's so great. I appreciate that a lot. That means a lot. Can you tell me about your practice? Yeah, I, I, it is exactly that way. I, I work, especially when I work with first responders, but not just first responders, because, you know, you work with police, fire, paramedics, and they're very real people. <laughs> you can't, you can't really... You don't say. Yeah, and you can't really sort of mince words, you can't really pretend. You really have to be straight up, and I am, and, you know, whether I'm assessing someone for the, I'm seeing, seeing, meeting them for the first time in an assessment, or I'm doing ongoing treatment with somebody you know, I always feel like I want to treat people the way that people, I would want people to treat me. Like if, I, if I'm in, in session with someone, you know, this is how I would want to be treated. And so I'm very, very real. I'm very blunt. I'm very honest. I'm very transparent. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you do share a little bit about yourself. But, you know, most importantly, I really want people to know sort of where, where I'm at, what I'm doing in terms of treatment, how I'm helping them, you know, how I propose to help them, what the research says about helping them and the best ways to help them. And have them make an informed decision, but let them know this is, I'm laying it out, this is what it is. That goes a long way with people because they trust me. Yes, yes. Well, do you find that if you... um, I found that, well, I mean, I keep, I keep, I keep saying I found that. And the reason I do is because I'm a very open book about it. So um, I, I found that when I worked with certain doctors, the softer the hands that come at me, 
the more I don't take them seriously. I need like people, I and I think especially with first responders. And when you said that about you know having these guys and these women come in, they're they're very real. I know that we have an incredibly open door policy here, and we have paramedics roll through, and we've got and they'll just sit and chat with you, build boxes, and. If you, you learn really quickly that they have a very blunt way of talking about things, a very forward way of talking about things. And if you don't have some type of, um, <clears throat> wall up to that, I, I can imagine that would be troubling, uh, as a therapist. I'm, I'm a little bit curious though, what you and how you deal with d- being, being you, because I know personally uh, I seem to be someone that people talk to, whether it's the obvious in my, on my forehead. I'm pretty sure I walk around. I thought I had a resting bitch face. I thought we all were in agreement. That's what my forehead said. Um, and, but apparently lately I have this come welcome, tell me your life story and everything. And I'll take it all on emotionally and handle it so poorly. So I don't know. <laughs> well, how the hell do you do that? Seriously? Well, first of all, I do actually see you as welcoming. I would talk to you. I, see? I would see you damn it. Sorry, but I'm telling you the truth. God you damn it. You see open and welcoming, and you actually seem like you might have some things like sorry to say. But shit. anyway. Call me shit. I thought we were on this track. I was going from, listen, I went from being this hard, like my girlfriend, she's an RCMP officer, uh, Tina McGilvery. Yeah, I called you out, bitch. Um, she calls me cookie. She's like, you're super hard on the outside, but in the inside, you're just this wet, mushy, gooey thing. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And then so for a long time, I just like, I thought I just wrote fuck off right here for a long time. And I thought the world could see it. And then, um, I'm obviously being told my fuck off isn't strong enough. So I guess I'll work on that. Yeah, we can see through that. You know, okay. and, you know it's, it's interesting because when I'm on the street, sometimes I might have that on me as well, even though I'm a therapist, I'm, I'm a psychologist, therapist, you know, clinician, all of that. You know, sometimes you, you kind of want to be a bit guarded because you don't want to answer your question, how do I manage that? Yeah. Well, it's not easy because, you know, friends, family, strangers mm-hmm. <laughs> who see me think that I, it's open. I'm open for business to talk to, right? Yeah. So everybody wants to talk. And um, I don't know. I manage it well. I think it's just my personality um, in terms of why I got in this profession in the first place and that I really do actually enjoy helping people. It's actually something that I I like a lot. And so unless I'm kind of going through my own stuff where Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like, okay, I need a break. I need to kind of close off a little bit because I need to practice some self-care, which Mm -hmm. I, I, I definitely need to do sometimes. That I'm actually open to speaking to people. I actually, people will email me, colleagues will say, you know, I have a problem with my daughter or whatever. Yeah. Could you, could you, could you talk to me? Could you talk to her? You mm-hmm. know, just off the record, you know, could you give some advice? And I will always say yes. I will never say no. That's the problem. This, this, this idea of that word no, that word no is a, that's a tricky bitch. She, she comes at you hot and you're like, you know what? You know what? I'm going to put my foot down, my tiny little foot. I'm going to put it down and I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to plant it. And then they go, then they go, hey, Kelsey. And I'm, yes, immediately. There is no, like, you don't even have to ask me what, what to do. It's like, I, I, I'm, no, I'm going to be, no, anything, anything you need. I'm here. I got you. You just melt, right? Damn it. Every time. I don't understand. But when you, when you do that though, I mean, you're really dealing with, you're really dealing with, let's, let's, let's be serious for a second. You're really dealing with some heavy, 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 heavy stuff. And the reason I enunciate that so aggressively is because you're dealing with uh, people who are seeing drownings, burnings, rapes, uh, murders. You're seeing the worst of the worst and you're seeing it on a, um, you're seeing it on a, on a repeat basis with these people, but then you're also seeing it with new clients. And so it's always, people don't come to you to be like, I'm going to spend my money telling you how great my life is, but they come to you when they're the worst of the worst of their life that, you know, how does that not break through though? Because that's a whole other conversation. It's one thing to have people talk to you. It's one thing to 
have that welcoming face. But it's another when somebody's like, hey, I just, I had to, I tried to save a baby today and they didn't make it. Yeah. yeah. No, very good question. And it's one I hear quite a bit. Because mm-hmm. dealing with trauma, like you're, you're mentioning, is, is tough. I mean, hearing people's stories, you know, you, I hate to say it, but you become desensitized to it. And I think on some level, I have to, to do my job well. Um, you know, I've heard of some of my first responders coming in for assessment and saying, they're telling me, you know, their stories of trauma and, and, and telling me, you know, individual pieces of, of stories that it's hard for them to talk about. But, you know, obviously we encourage people to talk about it because yes. this is actually part of the treatment that we, we mm-hmm. recommend that's evidence-based. And when they're talking about it, they go, well, I don't really want to be tra- I want to traumatize people, so I don't want to talk about it. And I said, no, no. I said, this is my job. This is what I do, and it's okay. And they'll say, well, I spoke to some counselor one time, and mm-hmm. they were starting to make faces, and they were going, ew, and they were going, oh. and That's I disgusting. uncomfortable. Right. So... They didn't feel comfortable, and so they were wondering what to expect with me, right? Well, that's a hard thing when you're going in to see a new a new therapist of any kind. I mean, I'm for me, I, I, I like I said, I, I keep going back to it, but I think I, I make a point of saying for me because it's my I don't know any other experience from what I've I've heard, so I always try to reference what I know, um, and I that's all I know, and I know I've been in that situation where I've had those conversations with doctors, and the first thing that they say is, well, you know, let's try this drug or. They go, you see, whether whether you like it or not, we are all humans, and sometimes we have a physical reaction to something we've heard, whether or not we realize we're doing it. Right. That's also something I've been told I do. I just do this, apparently, when I get, like, grossed out or creeped out. I don't even realize my face is doing it. Just, but sure. I can understand how a therapist would, you would really, I mean, that would be exhausting. Um, but I get it. Yeah. It, it can be. And I think it's just that's where the self-care comes in because what I have to worry about is, you know, should I be worried about uh, burnout? Yes. Should I be worried about, um, you know, getting into a slump or depression myself or, you know, developing sort of vicarious trauma, you know, hearing these stories. But um, if I don't practice self-care, then I couldn't do this job for 17 years. What? And... What do you find it works for self-care, though? Because people say self-care, and that yeah. can take on a whole thing on its own. Of course. So well, one thing I do is I do leave the day behind as much as I can. Um, I know I'm working from home right now. So how's that working out for you, team? Uh, you know, it's, I've had mixed feelings. I think it's good in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to, to buy those boundaries at home, mm-hmm. um, being at home and then you know, having meld into the kids and, you know, family life and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I don't miss the commute, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's nice to, to wake up and, you know, get into my routine and, and do it at home. Uh, um, but I do try to, you know, create sort of boundaries for myself being at home in particular because I can leave the office before and yeah. then I leave it behind. Um, and, you know, no one says, you know, I'm not going to say sit here and say I've never done work from home, you know, when I get home. And, of course, but of course. sometimes I have to. But I do try as much as possible to leave it behind, you know, watch Netflix, um, you know, spend time with the kids and talk about nothing and nonsense. Yeah. And really try to be focused on other things rather than what I just heard for the day. And that helps a lot. I don't know how it how it works, but it seems to work because I'm able to go back the next day and hear it all over again and be okay. For some reason. That's, right? I'm actually a little bit, like, the reason my face, I just saw myself, but my face is doing it again. I, that shocks me a lot. And the reason is, is I know the type of stuff you're hearing. And for me, I, you know, maybe it's because I've, I've been in a, maybe similar trauma, but when I have people come in here and we talk about stuff like that, like, we'll just sit down and they'll come in, oh, I need to, I love it. Cause they'll be like, oh, I need to, I need to get a bracelet for a friend. So they'll, so they'll come into our office, they'll come into our warehouse, and they'll come in and they'll, they'll be, oh, yeah, and so, you know, this happened, so-and-so, and I, you know, we were here, and next thing you know, we're sitting on the couch, and next thing you know, we're having this conversation, and they're emotional, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just kind of listening, and I'm, like, there for them, and, like, what, you know, what do you think, and I'm, I'm doing all that, and then they leave, okay? Yeah. And um, I stand up, and the, some of the girls kind of pop their head out and go, you all right? And I'm like... 
Yeah, yeah, that was a rough one there. But like, I am not equipped for that. But I will never stop offering that, though. Like, I do it almost to a to a fault. But I find um, it amazing that you're able to disconnect. And the reason I'm, I ask you that is like, I, just, I said is, I want this to be a teaching, not only just like a teaching podcast, but I want it to be I want it to be real enough that you can try these types of things and hopefully they could work for a listener because honestly, I have no, I don't know how to do that at all. And it's a serious struggle for me. Yeah, for sure. And it would be for you, like you said, you're not a trained professional in this way. So no, you know, that's, that's part of it too, right? Because, you know, you're hearing things that you shouldn't be hearing. <laughs> you know, you weren't, you're not equipped to hear those things. Although so it's harder. Although I've been in, treatment for 10 years every week. So I feel like the amount of information I have retained and I, and I will find, I will be honest though. I found that the more I understood or started to understand what was physiologically going on from a, you know, a receptor to receptor actual, I under started to understand, or it at least helped me to understand what my brain was doing in and that helped me somehow to push forward in a different way because I was like, okay, I'm not completely blind to this. This is something I can understand that this is physically doing this, which is equaling this. So I under I started to work with that and I found that was a, I would say a little bit of a breakthrough, but a breakthrough moment, at least in my treatment process, was is the willingness to understand. And I also am just very interested in the brain and how it can so easily and willingly turn it on itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do want to ask you though about that. You, you, 17 years. Yes. When you started out, number one, how, what made you go, okay, this was this, you know, the thing you wanted, but was there a traumatic event or something that made you? Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a very good question. And you know, what brought me, first of all, into the mental health field is that sort of need. I wanted I wanted to do something to help people, so I'll start there. Okay. So I thought, like my mom, my mom was a nurse, so I thought for some reason when I was, since I was a kid I was going to be a nurse. You're like, this is happening for me. Mommy does it, I do it. Exactly. And um, she reminded me of when, as I was growing, she reminded me of when I was three or four years old and you know, she was sad in her own relationship with my dad, and she said, I would constantly ask her, how are you doing? You're the empathetic <laughs> child that everybody wishes they had, and the rest of us have kids that hit each other. And this, Do you need a tea, Mama? Do you need a tea? Oh, that's beautiful, though. It is, and I think, that, I think that was sort of, you know, the building blocks of me mm-hmm. getting into the profession. And then once I really decided at university level, actually, my second year at university, that, hey, maybe I should become a psychologist or a social worker or something like that. Um, that was when I started my path. But what, dro- what brought me to trauma, it was, it was, I fell into it. I actually fell into it. It wasn't something. Don't we all? It wasn't a trauma on my, you know, for myself. It was, I started, I did a practicum in my training with with a supervisor that was clinical head of the program at the time that I'm in. Mm. And I finished my practicum. I went away. I did my my residency or internship at the Ontario Shores, which was with the mental health at the time. Mm -hmm. And my supervisor, that old supervisor kept in touch with me and wanted to bring me back to do... Yeah, to do my um, what we call supervised practice, which is that that year before you become a psychologist, and that he wanted to supervise me for that year, and that is like the rest is is it's just history, right? literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so that person really was a um, a, mo- a monumental, huge part of your life. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. I love that. that. I mean, I don't I don't talk about my story on here, but that I had a person. That was that person when I decided to join the military. It was never. Uh, it's not that, you know, I, I didn't have a similar thing where my mom was a nurse. My mom, fortunately, I had a stay-at-home mom, thank God, because I'd be, I would not even be a quarter of who I am today. And I would have broke a long time ago because I wouldn't have had that headstrong at- attitude that she gave me. But my dad was a truck driver. But it wasn't like I was like, I'm going to be a truck driver. I loved, hey, I, but I, my dad was like, you never do that for a living. Like, he, you know, you know when your parents do something and you're like, 
Yeah. So they were like, I never had that. It was kind of do what you want to do. But I did have that person though. That was really that milestone point in my life that I can pinpoint and go, this is what drove that. And I think that's important for people when they're listening because they might not, people like, again, they come up to me and they say like, what, what made you do that? Or what made you, you don't always have an answer. And I think it's important to think back of why you do what you do and have a conscious, a conscious conversation with yourself about the things that you do. Because when it comes to mental health, at least for me, I can very quickly allow my brain to if I'm not being yes. conscious yes. and I, d- I don't know if you call that like in the moment or <laughs> living for the moment, bro, but it's, it's whatever you want to call it. I'm trying to do more consciousness, man, and be here. And I find it keeps me accountable. Yes. And I agree with you 100%. Yeah. That's absolutely. That being said. That's that's a whole animal on its own. Absolutely. That's a whole yeah, animal absolutely. on its own. I think we all need to do that. If you don't want to be coasting through life, no, you know, on, on automatic pilot. Because that's what ends up happening, is right. And after trauma, I don't know if you see it, but you get that autopilot. Your body is moving and doing the things, and the mouth is moving, but you can see that the brain is just not clicking yes. the way it should. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's very. Really- being quite typical of trauma, you know, the people often even dissociate where they, yes. lose, they lose time, you know, they're, they're, they're actually not focused on the task they're in or what they're doing because they're, they're back in the trauma. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of things that are going on for people in terms of the brain. Um, and, and all of these, these are very sort of, uh, they're, they're helpful in some ways for people as they're working through, but then not so helpful, right? So, yeah. Um, and they're avoidance patterns as well, which is very common. Oh, yeah. Those are my favorite. I I am the, yeah, my, at first we did this, uh, when we started doing treatment, they did this lovely, lovely uh, thing called EMDR. Yes, I know EMDR. Yeah. Can you explain to my listeners? Because I feel like if I do it, it's going to be blinky lighty lighty go lefty righty. Well, I, I, I don't do EMDR. I, I know it as a, in terms of what, uh, what it is. Right, what it is. So it's eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, what it's called. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, one of uh, the, as far as the American Psychological Association is, is concerned, it is one of, considered one of the evidence based treatments, along with cognitive processing therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it is a way of processing the trauma um, with, with eye movement. So, you know, whether that's a light or however people do that, it's, um, I, I don't, for me personally, I don't know, um, I guess there is a mechanism in the brain where uh, the eye movement is helpful for the processing. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, because I don't do EMDR, and I'm sure that it is helpful for people um, because I've seen it be helped by helpful. I did not like it. Right. Some people don't. I know, and that's what makes me sad. Yeah, and no, it's because it's not for everybody. That's I right. Some people really do well with it, and some people mm-hmm. not so well, just like some people might do well with cognitive processing therapy. Yes. Maybe some, maybe another modality is better. So I think you have to see sort of where someone is at and what might be helpful. But the ultimate underlying theme here is processing. Exactly. So whether you're doing it like this or you're doing it yeah. through the Macarena, I don't care. Right. Just right. do it. Right. The, the mechanism that helps that's proven to help is the processing piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I, I, I like I want to touch on. So when you when because I brought up EMDR because I personally found it didn't work for me. I I almost felt like I was going into like a seizure like state when that happened. It was just too my I could yeah, it was not great. Um right. I want to know your thoughts on exposure therapy. Uh, so I believe in it. Okay. Uh, I use it. I, I've used, um, I've been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy, the form of trauma treatment is called uh, prolonged exposure. Mm-hmm. So you have people like Edna Foa and her, her colleagues that are really the, the implementers of this, this type of therapy. And what it does is, is um, from a imaginable, so it's broken up into parts. So imaginable exposure, for example, is when you have the, the person in your office recount the trauma. 
mm-hmm. um, and they're they're being taped. So you're taping this as they're, they're they're recounting, and the idea is that as they're doing that in the office, you're also giving homework to listen to the tapes at least three to five times for the week um, before they see you again. And you know the idea is that over time, there's a form of desensitization that's going on mm-hmm. uh, where you become you understand the trauma differently. You know you're never going to sort of forget the trauma, but you get to a point where you, you're, you're, you're more comfortable with, with the feelings or, and the, the emotions around it and the, the thoughts around the trauma, um, you know, versus not doing this type of treatment. And then there's in vivo exposure, which is the other side of that, where people actually have real life avoidance. So you might, if you're a police officer, for example, mm-hmm. you might be avoiding the uniform, mm-hmm. you know, when you're off work, you might be avoiding the place that you work, you might be avoiding a colleague. Mm-hmm. You might be avoiding, you know, sirens or police cars. And so you develop a, what we call an avoidance hierarchy. So you're developing a step-by-step hierarchy from, from least um, distressing to most distressing. We call it sub, subjective units of discomfort. And you're, you're, you're putting on that, that list, um, you, know, you know, usually starting around a 40 uh, sub out of 100. Yep. You're kind of moving up to see what's least anxiety-provoking mm-hmm. or distressing and what's most and you're working your way up physically. So this person's actually doing these these, these exposures. They're going out, they're, you know, they're skiing their, their uniform, whatever is lowest to highest, and then eventually you'll be walking into the, the precinct, right? So, wow. so these are things that, you know, and usually you can do them sort of, you know, together. You can, someone can be doing imaginal exposure while they're doing, you know, their vivo exposure as well. It can be overwhelming, but people can do it. And again, the idea is that they're 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 becoming more traumatized to to these things, and and I've seen it work. I've done it with people. Mm-hmm. Yes, they want to do the work. That's another thing, right. though. You you talk about doing you know these different types of therapies, and I know I did exposure therapy. I did it a little differently in terms of it wasn't videotaped, but it was written. Uh, writing seems to work for me, and then I did a lot of like rereading it, and then it got to a point where I. I felt like I was dissociating, but almost like not healthy. So we stopped because that's what my fear when you're talking about dissociation, dissociate, when you're dissociating from a situation, (laughs) there it is team. When you're doing that is there, there's, there's a difference between a healthy dissociation and unhealthy. And can you kind of like talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the sort of healthy you're talking about is sort of the the daydream, Mm -hmm. you know, portion where you're not going into a, a, a full-fledged, um, I'm back in the, in the situation where the trauma is happening now, um, and I'm actually feeling like, you, you know, you're almost like you're not grounded. Got right? it. So that's, that's the negative part of it. It's the positive, that's the positive part of it. But the other side of it is, is not going into that deep place, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you might be sort of daydreaming, you know, you're, you're really not at that level, but that deep level, where you're you're almost snapping your fingers trying to trying to you know get, you get someone's attention and you're not there you're mm-hmm. you know and so grounding often helps when someone is really dissociated to a place where you can't bring them back sometimes they, people use ice you know they use different ways to try mm-hmm. to make you know let someone know hey you know you're here you're in this office yeah um right now this is not happening again mm-hmm. you are not back in that place and then bringing people back um into the, the, the here and now. It's so amazing what the brain is capable of doing. When it's, it's, when it's truly able to disassociate. I know when a lot of trauma victims, especially sexual assault, you'll hear the disassociation happens so aggressively during, the, during an act that they, they, there is no almost recounts, no memory and, and, and no feeling, nothing of that. So when you're dealing, I'm just bringing that up because when you're dealing with somebody who's gone through something like that, how do you handle that if there is a dissociation happening on a trauma level, like during a trauma? How do you, you, I would assume you would obviously, maybe not obviously, not use dissociation techniques to work with them on that? Or I, I'm curious about that, how that works. So if they're back in the trauma in the moment? Yeah. So if they're, it's like in your office? Yeah. Yeah, so that's where you would you would try to bring them back by the grounding technique. And right? and with and with those grounding techniques though, do you have you ever in your experience found pulling somebody out of that to to be I don't want to say damaging, but 
bringing somebody back. Do you know what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah. So should you let them sort of yes. go through it is what you're asking. Uh-huh. Will it re-traumatize them? Yeah, no, no, it, it doesn't actually. When you bring them back and you ground them and you let them know where they are, it's actually going to be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it takes time and you want to do it gently. You don't want to be snapping people and, you know, yeah. hey, get out of that. You <laughs> yeah. know, because you understand where, where they are and why it's happening. Yeah. Part of the trauma It's a symptom of the trauma. So you really want to be, you know, quite gentle in how you're doing that. But it, it really does need to happen because it, it's hard for them to pull themselves out of it. Right? So yeah. they need that assistance if they're with you. If they're not with you, obviously, then they've got to come out of it themselves. And sometimes people who can be somewhat aware know the grounding technique mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and understand them and can use them for themselves. And, you know, and sometimes they just, they're waiting it through to come out of it. Mm-hmm. But, but, but that being said, when they do come out of it, even in your office, sometimes they're still quite riled up and physiologically aroused. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just really just time being gentle with that process. Yeah, because then those people have to leave your office and some get in a vehicle and some drive. And I've been in that situation where I've had to pull over on the side of the road and call my doctor and he says, okay, I want you to wait half an hour because I don't think it's safe for you to do. You're too not there in your, you know, yeah. Well, we don't have, we we really, we're really careful. Yeah. We, if we see that they're still a bit shaky, we have them sit in our, our, our room, the client lounge, yeah. until we feel that they're, they're safe to go. That's fantastic. Yeah, we don't just let them go. We keep them, you know, even an hour, two hours, they can lay down, they can relax, they can do whatever they need to do to feel, and until we're comfortable that they can go on their own, we wouldn't let them go. Yeah, that, that whole mind-body connection, people, I think, really, truly are starting to understand and i've said this i actually when i got the opportunity to talk to dr fang lu um about it they're really starting to finally understand the mind body connection and how significant of a tool and um how much it plays into everything we do and before it wasn't you know you know decades ago there was no real the mind and the body were not one it wasn't seen as one and i think it's so important to acknowledge that and the reason i bring that up is when you're working with patients like this and you start to see different levels of um i just took notes because i want to make sure i get it right sure. suicidality did i say that right okay yeah. so when you're getting thank you huh wow nailed one thing in my life today let's get that going um we have moments of proud, Coleman. That's one. Um, when you're talking about that, and you said there's different levels of that, I, I'm always curious because I happen to run into people who are on what I would consider the spectrum of this. And what I would want to know is at what point, if you were just an average person listening to this and somebody started having that conversation or broaching topics, at what point do you take that completely seriously or do you leave yourself open and make them feel safe? Like you can tell me everything because you might not get that full, like you might say, oh, you know, I'm th- they, they might be thinking about it, but really in their head, they're only saying that to test you to see how far. So I'm just curious about any tips or tricks you hear for people that are listening about that because there are quite a few first responders and vets that listen to this. How, so basically the question is how, how would I... Uh, assess that level of suicidality. suicidality. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I think um, it, it's not easy, even when someone comes, for example, to my office and I'm assessing them, and I'm asking, I'm at the point where I'm asking about suicidality, because we ask everybody, obviously, those questions. Of course. And when we're asking, sometimes people are quite reluctant to say anything, because we know, they know that we, we can call them. And you can hold them, and they can be, yes. Absolutely. And when we're at the office, there is an emergency room next door, and we have lots of people over. Yeah. But we weren't comfortable. So people are reluctant sometimes. But what I do is I try to explain to them that suicide, suicidality is normal. Yeah. Um, that a lot of us. All of us. All of us. Different variations. That's the difference. Absolutely. We'll think about it from time to time, even if it's just periodically, mm-hmm. whether it's passive to active. Again, maybe thinking, you know, life's not so great right now. I'm kind of, I, I kind of wish that I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. And uh, my family's probably better off if I'm not here because they're taking care of me. I'm a burden. All these types of yep. things. That's what I would consider to be passive suicidality. Yeah. Okay. Would I say that I wouldn't worry about someone because they're passively suicidal? Oh, no, I you always worry. Always worry. Now, yeah. do I worry at the same level to someone who says to me, 
I actually think about suicide every day. Mm -hmm. I've actually attempted suicide in the past mm -hmm. by this method. And I do think about, you know, hanging myself or taking pills or doing something that can cause my suicide. Mm -hmm. um, then I'm actually more imminently concerned. Okay. And I would actually say to someone at that point, um, I'm not, I'm not comfortable, and I have said this even in cases I've supervised, I've gone in to assess people when my, my student comes to me and says, I, I need help with this yeah. assessment, so yeah. I come in, and I've spoken to the client and I said, you know, where are you at now with, with wanting to kill yourself or hurt yourself? Yeah. And they'll say, I'm not really quite sure, I feel like I could, but I don't know, and I said, okay, can you? Can you sit here and tell me that you're not going to do it when you leave this office? And you say, no, I can't promise you that. That's, that's enough for me to say. Okay. go over to the emergency. Yeah. That's enough. And sometimes they're okay and they're comfortable with that decision. And sometimes I've had people say, well, I'm not comfortable with that. And then I remind them of our limits of confidentiality from that we've set up from the beginning, which is that this is something where I may have to breach confidentiality. Yeah, this is to protect you. This is not. This is not because I'm. You're being difficult. This is. This is something to help you live through the next. Exactly. Yeah. And it works every time. I've never had someone say no. I refuse. I refuse. Oh really? You know when I no when I explain it in that way, usually people will come over. I've never had a real problem with that. I'll walk them over. I think it's you though. No, I'm serious. I, I No, Donna, honestly, listen, I really think it's you. And that sounds silly and that can sound ridiculous, but I think it's you. It's the way something is presented, how it's presented, and in the tone in which it's presented. Because you're not doing it in a judging tone. You're not doing it at a, well, this is what's going to happen. You're doing it in a, listen, this is like a very motherly, protecting, non-judgmental forum. And I think that's probably why you've been so successful in having those and haven't had any issues with that. Because I've been in those situations where people where I've had to physically move you into a hospital and they're not going, but it's like, if I know if I leave you, I'm going to get a call. So I would rather you kick and scream until I get you there than have to deal with the ramifications and live with that the rest of my life. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll Absolutely. take you out. I got no shame Absolutely. in taking you out. Absolutely. Except I remember one of my first responders where I did call 911 because I, I was at the office and he was at home. And oh, okay, yeah. He, he was very upset with me. He called me and said he was very angry when the police came to his home. And I, I reminded him of my obligation yeah. to protect him. And we, when we met in the office the next time, oh, dear. he said to me, yeah. he's like, are you going to call them one of me again? I go, are you going to give me a reason to? Yeah, said, you're a grown adult. You give me a reason. He said, fair enough. And we Damn were, it. Never had to do it again. We were good. He, went, he actually, like, he went back to work successfully. I discharged him probably about three or four years ago. And he, wow. He was doing really well when, when I left. Him, so. I, that's, I love how you just started talking about that because that was something I wanted to talk about because you have an incredibly high rate of uh, success and discharge with, with, your, with your patients going back on the job. That in yeah. itself is a very underrated statement. Um, because I don't think our listeners or people in society really truly understand what that means to be able to go from dealing with trauma at that level as a first responder and being willing to go back into that situation again, but with a healthy mind again and what that truly takes yeah. to do that. Can you tell me a little bit about the strategy you use to do that? Because I mean, there, you got to be doing something. There's something in the sauce. I think so. I don't know. I I think um, I've, I've had a few cases in particular where, um, you know, I, there's three that come to mind, including one that I'm working through now, mm -hmm. uh, and and one that I just discharged uh, probably about three or four months ago, uh, and I had her for treatment. Wow. And she went back to work successfully. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm very happy. Anyways, um, I think part of it is the perseverance and the the non-judgment and the I believe in you, mm -hmm. um, and I never gave up on that. And I think there were times, even the former teacher that I helped get back um, to her, her, her school wow. program and the teaching, uh, she had been off for quite a while. She had three unsuccessful attempts at return to work. Oh, wow. And at that point, WSIB said to me, call it. Yeah. Give her a permanent restriction. Yeah. She's going to work somewhere else. And I, I thought about it, and I, I remember coming to my office with her husband at one point, and her husband said, you know what, I don't think she can do this. And she said to me, don't call it yet, please. Just, just give me another chance. Just give me a minute. Like, 
Yeah, I said, okay. I, I was actually a bit doubtful, but I was showing her, I'll be honest. The face was on. Okay. Yeah, I believe in you, but I'm really struggling in the background. But I'm struggling. Yeah. And, oh my goodness, she went back, and not only was she successful, a year later, her husband um, uh, sent me a message and said, she's still going strong, thank you so much. See that? That's all of it. That's, that's everything. Isn't that what everything is worth? Like, all the hard all work. All about that. Wow. Yeah. That's because yeah. I know I wasn't able to go back. So I know how truly difficult you, you have to want it so badly. Yes. And you have to have, you can want it until you're blue in the face, but if you don't have people that are going to be patient with you yes. and take the time with you, no yeah. matter the time limit, because often, like you said, there's a certain amount of times in the protocol, and if you don't hit those, that's it. And exactly. And because it's a money thing now, because it's a time and a resource, and now you're... Uh -huh. And so that's why they're not always, that was like being in the employer may not be patient, but I, <laughs> I got you. I feel like I got time. And they're not happy with me sometimes because they're like, come on. Yeah, but these are people. These are human beings who have right. probably worked their entire lives to get into that job. That's right. That career, that's their whole, they can't picture. Absolutely. But that's what people forget is you, you, sometimes some people cannot see outside of who their identity is attached to that profession. And when you rip that away from them, it not only worsens the trauma, it, it makes you feel like a failure in that sense. And you can't always get back to who that person was and that's what they did to me and that that really that really messes you up and you don't always realize it till like five years down the road absolutely and, and you know what it's funny you said something that's important that not everybody gets back to their pre-injury work no and that's okay too that I is yes people, like i helped a guy get back to work completely outside of his field i had to call that permanent restriction but he did he is. He was so successful that I discharged him three years ago. And every once in a while, I still hear from him that oh, yeah. he's still working and he's doing well. Because and he's proud. He's yeah. he's proud to tell you. It's almost like um, when the ducklings go out, they just got to come back once in a while to be like, "Look, I'm still here. Nothing ate me yet. I'm alive. Yeah. I'm swimming. I'm swimming in the right direction." And yes. and it's almost a point of pride for them. It's like, be proud of me because. You've done so much work. You've taken so much time on that person. You've invested your time. And like you said, you have that part of you that separates, but you do also have that, that, that sensitive side of you that when you were three years old talking with your mom, that will come through no matter what to all of your patients. So you get that sense of, uh, of connect. And, and I mean, I'll be honest, I have that with my doctor and I don't even call him Dr. Passy anymore. It's old man. So it's cranky old man. Yeah. And you have to have that. And I think it's okay to have that relationship with your doctors because it allows me to be more truthful, more honest, yes. and safer. I don't see Absolutely. a problem with that. Some people do, but I really think it made me dig deeper than I probably would have ever went. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Before is more than half of and, really and you know what it is? I hear about so many people who are like, I needed to talk to somebody. So I went to somebody and, you know, they were horrible. They, they judged me. I just, and then they never would go back. It's like a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that too. And, and you know, I don't want to ever be that to someone, you know, I'm, I, I, don't I don't want to be judging. I don't think you got worried. Even judging people is, is a big turn off. You know, if I feel like I'm being judged by someone, I don't want to talk to them. Do Why you, would someone want to talk to me if I was judging them, right? Do you feel judged right now? I don't. I'm judging so hard. You have no idea. I'm you so can't judge. I'm so judgy. I'm You're the, still not judgy. I'm the most judgy person in the world. I judge you're, all you're things. Doing such a bad job at judging right now. You know what's bullshit is this lady can read through all of my bullshit <laughs> so hard. This is what's hard about having, I love having conversations with lovely humans like you, but I swear to God, you just read right through me and it is so annoying because I'm like, shit, I can't. I can't with you guys. I try to be, I'm, I'm, I am professional. Shut up. I got this. Okay. Listen, I, I, I want hours and hours with you. Um, and I know I don't have that. So I want to touch base on a couple things before, before I have to let go of your beautiful face. Um, 
Number one, what you're doing is is uh, more than anybody should ever be asked of in their lifetime and the willingness that you do it and, and with the passion and care you do it, that's everything and why you always continue to be successful and why your patients will always call you. If I were your patient, I'd call you. I'm not your patient, still going to call you though. So... <laughs> You're like, fuck, what did I get myself into? No, no, it's all good. It's um, <laughs> and I want it, I want you to kind of leave me with something besides self-care. Give me something else that my people who are sounding boards for everybody in their lives, give me something else to tell them besides try to leave it at work. Try to you know, try, give me something, give me something here. So I think what I would say is um, everyone has different ways of, of really taking care of themselves, first of all, right? So what works for me is not going to work for everyone else. But, you know, I think it's important to do a number of things. Like if I were to go through um, what a day should, a typical day should look like for someone, you know, and again, I'm not judging, but um, judging. You know, getting Getting up at the same time every day is really, it, it, it sounds silly, but getting up at the same time, um, you know, trying to get a structure going in your day is works wonders for people. Trying to get in some exercise of some kind. I tell all my clients this, whether it be just going for a walk or, mm-hmm. you know, just doing something, taking some stairs, whatever it is that you're capable of doing from a physical perspective. Just move. Everyone... Move, move. Exercise is is, is, is like medicine. Mm-hmm. It's medicine to the body, it's medicine to the mind it is. and brain. And, and I think it's a really important way of taking care of yourself. And no matter how tired I am or how happy I feel, I, 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 I figure out a way to move every single day. And I get up at the same day every day. I make sure I have a structure in my day. If I'm, if I'm working, when I'm not working, even on the weekends, I have a structure in my day. What am I? What's my, what are my plans for today? Because it actually keeps you focused on the day ahead and what you can do. And you, it's called activation, actually. It's one uh-huh. of the behavioral strategies. There she is. <laughs> Give it to me. Educate activation. me. You're activated. You're structuring your day. You're moving through your day. You're not just kind of sitting around. You're working. You're just doing work, and you're not doing anything else. You're trying to figure out productively what you can do with your day, even if that means budgeting entertainment time and relaxation time and Netflix time, whatever that looks like, a warm bath, you know, whatever that looks like for you, that I think is really important and it will help you get through a lot of the things that are plaguing you, you know, that are, are difficult for you. It really does help. I love that. I, I think the reason I ask that is because people have this perception of self-care and we see this on Instagram and we see on the self-care Saturdays. It's like, bitch, shut up. You don't know what self-care is. I don't like your idea of self-care is like taking pictures of your face. Like, go away. Nobody wants to do that. Well, but that's a, such a broad definition. And I think it's important because when you talk to people or you listen to these po- people's podcasts, you're like, self-care went shopping. And then I like when I got my nails done. And then after I got my, like, it's like not everybody has the means or the money. Shut up, Coleman. Not everybody has the means or the money to have these types of self-care things. And I think like you reiterating, you know, move, just live your life with some drive. Yeah. Have some, what, what's a, some, my sergeant used to say this to me. It was in French. So I'm going to try to see if I can remember in English. He used to say, he's like, can you just live your life with some initiative? Like, like you give a fuck about your day. Whether you don't or not, just move with some drive in the right direction. Um, and me, purpose. just yeah. purpose. Exactly. Move like you care, just a little yeah. bit. I do that with, when I'm driving. It's just people, you obviously don't give a shit about your life because I have places to go, and, but you don't. Things to see. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's why I think that's important to reiterate is the self-care aspect just because I know there's a lot of, like, big dudes who are, like, ex-military guys listening to this going, I'm not having a bath. Don't tell me I have a bath because people find out if I have a bath, I will lose my friendship cards with a lot of these dudes. But it, you need to have that different perspective in it. And I think it's incredibly important that you uh, explain it the way you did. And, and it, like you said, it's all research-based. That cognitive tool of having a structure, having a routine, making your body move is almost half the battle. Right. 
It really is. For, for some people, it is as simple as that because maybe they don't have a lot of movement in their life or they're already dealing with, you know, sleep depression. Um, sleep deprivation is a massive, massive thing to fix. If you can't fix your sleep, everything else goes out the window. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think, you know, having that uh, decompression almost in, in some way, shape or form, whether it's you punching a bag or going for a walk, as simple as going for a walk is... Taking the stairs, I, I really liked that one. Absolutely. I don't have stairs. I have a ladder, but I'll, I'll ladder it. I do have a treadmill, though. I do have a treadmill under my desk, and I'm just, I need to just, I have to move because I just can't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to do it. You that, have to do it. That brain. And one, uh, one other thing I want to, like, I would like to kind of touch base on is this. I know you say it's like you're doing, um, you know, you're not the one dealing with the foundation and stuff, but you know, you really, um, from what I've heard, you really have become the face of this incredible, not suicide, not today. I think that's the message that needs to be taken from this is that it doesn't have to be an option. It never, ever, ever has to be that for you. Um, and I just, is there anything that I have like, importance that I really should talk about um, from your perspective that could help? Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, it doesn't have to be an option. I think it's the hope piece. Um, it's, it's a way of saying that there are other there are other ways and that there is hope. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this is, this is, the reason this doesn't have to, have to be an option is because there's hope of something better. And so you're working with people to see that and so that they don't look at it as an option. And that's mm -hmm. what this is all about, right? Mm -hmm. It's providing somebody with hope of different options, different alternatives, and so that this doesn't become the only one. And and I and you know, and having that 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 hope the second you lose that, that's when things can get messy. And I think it's important for people to not only hear this episode, but to watch it because if people really realize that you can have incredible therapists like you, they might go to them more often. Do you know? I really, I really believe that. I really do because I've had some shit people where you're like, how did you pass anything at any point with any doctorate? Because you cannot, you can't be taken seriously. It's just there's certain people and they think you make it, uh, you make it a normalized conversation when you are open the way you are. And I, I think that's like you said, this needs to be, having this conversation doesn't need to be a mark on anybody. Having this you know, the suicidality of your, of your friends, talking to people, hearing those yes. things and being yes. aware of the words coming yes. out of their mouth. Yes, you said it. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, people feel sometimes it's a myth to say that when you talk about suicide with someone, when you ask questions, yeah. like, it's going, it means that they're going to do it. And it's like, no, no, actually, no, that's actually no. Yeah. You need to talk about it. You need to ask the questions. You need to see where something's at. Because when you don't ask the questions, then... You know, you don't know what's going on, and you allow someone to sort of slip into that place of no hope. Yes, and that's terrifying. And that is terrifying. Yes. Exactly. And that's like the that's like the worst that's the worst of the worst in that situation. It's I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this and is because let's make this a normal conversation. We shouldn't be able we shouldn't be afraid to talk about how we're truly feeling inside and uh, be judged by that. Like I said, I couldn't couldn't care less how people feel about how I feel. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to say how I feel. I'm going to tell you if I've, if I've felt suicidal. I'm going to tell you if I've, I've struggled with depression and anxiety because right. there's not a damn thing wrong with it. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm totally cool with it. Well, that's it, though. It, that's, that's the difference, though, is having these conversations. And finally, we're starting to see that. And that's where you start to see doctors like you come forward and you give that hope to people. Um, just using your face in that, in, that, you know, in that sense makes all the difference. People see who you are and will go... God damn it, she's like a mother from heaven. I just want to, now they're going to want to only talk to you and you're going to get bombarded with new clients. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay, but you know what? It's really important for us to say that we're all in this together. It's, it's in the truest sense. Us and them. It's never been, it should never be us or them and it, it never should have been us or them. But at the end of the day, as long as we're taking the right steps and moving in the right direction to keep that conversation going, I think we're going to be all right. I absolutely agree, and I'm hopeful. I have seen hope's all we need, baby.
I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Donna Ferguson, for coming on our show today. It's been nothing but a, a pleasure and educational honor. And the the stuff I've even learned in the short period of time, um, I think will help so many. And I uh, I hope that we get to have you on again. Please. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. You're awesome. Oh, <laughs> thanks, man. No one's ever told you that before. People, but, uh, I don't yeah. listen to people. <laughs> You know what it is? I'm 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 getting hearing aids soon. No joke. Two of them because I'm going fucking deaf. And um, I'm going to lean into that so hard. But I'm also just going to turn it off. <laughs> Be careful. Self-care. Whatever that means for you. But. Continue to be awesome. Cannabis. I will self-care myself silly. And yes, ma'am, I will do my best to keep being awesome. And uh, yeah, we'll chat with you later. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really nice meeting you. Thanks for having me. So on this episode of this week's podcast, we are featuring the Pat Tillman Foundation as our resource of the week. They provide academic scholarships and professional development and a nationwide network to their veterans and uh, those that use their scholar community. Um, the Pat Tillman Foundation has been funding scholarships for years now, and they do nothing but incredible work and have, I believe, over 500 plus scholars that have graduated their programs and transitioned into civilian life. Um, they are a great foundation and are supported by so many, but could always be there for you if you need resources. So please do, if you are looking to educate yourself again and reintegrate into society, definitely reach out to the Pat Tillman Foundation.org and they can uh, hopefully help you guys out with that. And we'll see you all next week.